0: Well, good morning, family. Good morning. <laughs> you know that moment when you wake up and you realize you have a scratchy voice and plugged ears? And if you go anywhere in public, your persona non grata these days? <laughs> I'm having one of those moments. So I'm glad there's a little bit of distance, and I, I promise to honor that. Uh, but it's, it's just such a joy to be with you to to look at your faces and behind your shoulders to watch the snow fall it's like god had this day written in his calendar as well this is the beginning of our advent journey towards christmas if you have your bibles with me i'm going to invite you to open them to philippians in chapter 2 we're going to camp out on these verses for the next 4 weeks as we think about the mammoth reality that is the real mystery of christmas we've called this series incarnate incarnate uh, that word the word incarnation or incarnate is uh, is a thick word and we're going to spend a fair bit of time unfolding everything that that word means for us why is that important Uh, Christmas can be a a joyful, life-affirming celebration, Uh, but it can also be a bit of a confusing time, can't it? There are parts of it that just don't seem to add up in a way that makes sense. We read about the humble circumstances of the birth of Jesus, and yet we surround ourselves with all of the wealth and the indulgence of gift-giving and gift-receiving, We read about a star in Bethlehem, a star that most people missed. Only a few saw it, and even fewer understood its significance. And yet we surround ourselves by blinking lights of all sizes and colors that no one can miss, the gaudier the better. We tell the story, and we know it well, a stable outside an overcrowded inn in an obscure city. But when we think about Christmas, that's not what we picture we we picture warm houses and and warm fires burning and and a big table and everybody gathered around there together and we sing great songs songs about shepherds but really our days are filled with salesmen we sing about angels and we talk about reindeer even one that has kind of a bright shiny nose <laughs> And so, somewhere along the way, maybe there's just a little bit of a, of a disconnect between what we read and between what we feel. And I'm not trying to be Scrooge here, because I love it all. My family know that. I, I love it all. I love the zany parts. I love I love the secular parts. I love the beauty of the story. But I guess what I'm saying is that for those of us who are in the church, It's very easy to miss the point. And here's what I mean on a deeper level. Even for those of us who are in the church, who know the whole story, you know the story of Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the wise men and all of the circumstances around the birth of Jesus, we can miss the point. You see, the mystery of Christmas is not primarily about the circumstances of Jesus' birth. The real mystery, the real depth to it, is the identity of the child in the manger. I mean, this is just a foundational truth that we are going to spend the next four weeks unpacking. The mystery of Christmas is not found in the circumstances of Jesus' birth, but in the identity of of the child. And and as you wrestle with that, there is something staggering, there is something humbling, there is there is something that just drives us to our knees, not the circumstances as bizarre and unexpected as they were, but the uniqueness of the child. There is a mammoth reality going on there that somehow God would come to inhabit our world in the form of a screaming, diaper-clad baby. That the one who who fashioned heaven and earth would now need to be diapered and changed and fed. That the one on whom we all depend was for one bright, shining moment dependent entirely on human parents for his care. That, that when you stop to think about the hands that that fashioned all of the celestial bodies of the heavens, that those hands now reaching out to a peasant mother because he was hungry. I mean, there's just something about that that you can't fully get your head around. This is the titanic reality of the God who had made himself incarnate. That word, which means literally in flesh. You know the word carnal, carnal. Carnal means fleshly. Sometimes we talk about the carnal sins. Those are the, the bad ones, the, the the dirty, fleshy ones. But the word carnal is not a bad word. It's flesh. It's what we're made of. It's what makes us us. And so when we say incarnate, what we're saying is God is making himself into us, into the form of that we recognize and inhabit it. That's the mystery, the undeniable mystery of Christmas. Not all the details, not the shepherds, not the wise men, not the circumstances of a humble birth. What I want to do is really dive into that central mystery by asking the really big question of Christmas. I mean, who is this? What is this? What is going on? when that child gets wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger? And it's a vast question. It's a multidimensional question. It impacts us in all kinds of different ways. We know, first of all, that this is an historic question. This was the central debate that consumed the attention of the church for the first 500 years. And all of the leading thinkers, all of the leaders of the early church, Apollos and Athanasius and Arius, when they gathered together, this is the thing that they were wrestling with the most. Who was Jesus? Is he God? Is he man? Is he both together? Is he fully God, fully man? Partially God? A little bit of man? I mean, what is it? How does it all work? They held together mighty councils, and, and everything that they wrote almost felt like it was focused on that one historic question. This, incidentally, is also the great historic divide between Christianity and what came before, between Christianity and Judaism, the identity of Jesus, who was he? What was he? And not just between Judaism and Christianity, but right across the board. Jehovah's Witnesses, Unitarians, Muslims. This is the historic question that we've wrestled with from the very beginning. But it's not just an historic question. It's an important one. I mean, there's lots of things in history that you could learn about, but, uh, but you might think, well, that's not very relevant anymore. This one absolutely is. This is an important question. In fact, I think it's the most important question. And here's why. Because if Jesus is somehow God incarnate, God in flesh, if that baby really is Emmanuel, God with us, then everything else in the New Testament falls into place and makes sense. Think about it for a second. It's a staggering claim, but if if Jesus is with us as God incarnate, then doesn't it make sense that he would walk on water? If he made water, what is walking on water for the one who created it? If Jesus really is God, is it so surprising to see him take five loaves and two fish and use it to feed a crowd of thousands? He made the very atoms that constitute bread. Not just that, he fashioned the stomachs of those who are about to enjoy it. Is it so hard to believe? Is anything in the life of Jesus really going to be surprising, even the resurrection? Think about it. When you realize that Jesus is God incarnate, then the staggering thought, the really baffling thought, is not that he would rise from the dead. He's the author of life itself. The really staggering idea is that he would die in the first place on behalf of those who were as insignificant to him, potentially, as an ant on the floor might be to you. But it would make complete sense that he would rise victorious from the grave. What astounds us is the fact that God in flesh actually died, and that truth That's what changes everything. There's a quote by C.S. Lewis. Do I quote C.S. Lewis every week? Does it feel like it? I do read the Bible too, but just he's such a quotable guy. So here's the C.S. Lewis for this week. He says, The doctrine of Christ's divinity seems to me not something stuck on which you can unstick, but something that peeks out at every point, so that you would have to unravel the whole web, the whole web of belief, in order to get rid of it. It's foundational. So not, not only is it an historic question, it's a key question. It's just important. But here's the third thing. Uh, as a question, it, it's one of those ones that you really could describe as awesome. Awesome i don 't mean like rad, you know it 's radical, but awesome, as in it moves you to awe, it fills you with wonder there 's often there 's a lot that we take for granted in the life of the church and and stuff that should drive us to our knees and leave our jaws hanging open and and just draw worship out of us. We treat it as kind of pedestrian, commonplace. You can't do it. This is mammoth. Don't get so drowned out by all the conversation about the circumstances of the birth of Jesus or the circumstances of the world right now as we celebrate Christmas that you miss its awesome significance. It's historic. It's important. It's awesome. But but here's the last thing. This is a deeply personal question, one that we're going to begin looking at today, a personal question, but for every single one of us, there's a part of our life that is absolutely going to hinge on how we answer that question. Who is Jesus? So if you've got Philippians, let's open it up together in Philippians In chapter 2 to one of the most incredible passages. I think this might be the most or one of the most important Christmas texts that we have, but we don't think of it as a Christmas text because you don't see the shepherds in here. There's no sign of the wise men. There's no manger. There's no Mary. There's no Joseph. There's not going to be a star. None of that is here. But we get to focus on what's really going on when you, when you peel back the curtain, and you get to see the reality behind the visible. So let's begin reading in Philippians chapter two in verse five. You see there where, where Paul says, "In your relationships, in, in your life together, in your life with one another, have the same attitude or the same mindset of Christ Jesus. And I want to let you know that what follows here, what you're about to read, is what many people have called the first great Christological hymn. This is entirely about Jesus. This is a hymn to Christ that's about Christ, that exalts Christ. And And so let's read it together. This is the hymn in praise of Christ, who being in very nature God, did not count equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross." Therefore, one of, the Christian, one of the church's great therefores, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and even under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If ever there were an amen in the church that was pent up waiting to get out, that's it, right? Amen, church? Amen. Uh, those words probably sung as much as spoken. They were offered up in worship to that child who gets laid in a manger. And what I'd like to do is is to look at A series of four truths over the next four weeks. Four pictures, if you'd like, of who that child is. Today we're going to look at a picture of Jesus, and it's there in the title. Jesus, God incarnate, the hope of glory. The hope of glory. We're going to see how that unfolds in just a second. Look with me at verse 6. Verse 6, this is where it all hangs. Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, held tightly, used for his own advantage. But just dwell with me on the very first part of that sentence: Jesus who, being in very nature, God. I mean that obviously, that sets him apart uniquely from every other child who has ever, will ever be born. This is not your average baby. This child is someone who being in very nature, God, the, the original words there in the Bible are pointing to his, his essence, his being, what he absolutely is, what he exists as. And in that, he is in very nature, God. In fact, the, the word, the word, and you, you know the English words that come out of it, the word is morphe, morphe, in the form of. In the form of. He is in the form of God. That doesn't mean he's like God or similar to God. It means in his very essence, he exists as God. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean for Jesus, a little baby boy, to be God in the flesh, God incarnate? What I want to do is take us to another passage. Keep your thumb there in Philippians 2. Actually, you have devices. How do you do that on a phone? Uh, Use the back button when you need to get there. And we're going to go to John chapter 1. We're going to notice how John starts his beautiful gospel. This is how John tells the Christmas story. And you read these words with Rochelle a little bit earlier in the service. But I want you to see how these words, these verses, set the stage for everything else that we're going to learn about Jesus in the gospels. And it all revolves around, again, the identity of the baby who gets laid in a manger. So let's have a look again at John chapter 1. It starts with these beautiful but kind of cryptic words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was with God there in the beginning. And through him all things were made. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. For indeed, he was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. But he came to that which was his very own, and his own did not receive him yet. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. And so, will you say these words with me, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I'm going to say a few things about that passage. The baby we need to see, who is he? Well, the first thing that John wants us to know is that he is the Word of God. What could that possibly mean? This baby is the word of God. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Relationship and essence. Now, what's that about, all this word talk? Who is the word? You just read those verses out loud uh, that the word became flesh incarnate. That's referring to Jesus. But why is John using this cryptic language he is the word. It seems kind of contemporary, right? You know, word, man, word. But <laughs> of all the names to use in describing Jesus, why this one? Let's think about it and allow your mind to drift back a little bit. What do you think of when you hear that expression, in the beginning, in the beginning? Where does your mind go? Yeah, Creation. Doesn't it go all the way back to Genesis to the very beginning? Genesis 1 1. In the beginning. In the beginning, who? In the beginning, God. Full stop. In the beginning, God. Life in its purest essence, God. Before anything else was, there was God. God exists. In the beginning, God, in the beginning. The Word. You see what's happening as they are fused together? If in the beginning God was there and in the beginning the Word was there, then you have the Word being equated to God. The Word was with God, the Word was God from the very beginning. And if you remember the creation story, God said this and then it happened. Creation bursts into existence according to the spoken word of God. God speaks, and creation proceeds from his mouth according to God's word. All of creation. Genesis 1, 2, 3, over and over again, you see the word of God mentioned. God speaks, and it comes to be his will, his power, his creative force, all revealed through his word. So God is working is revealing himself through his word. Later on in the Psalms, uh, it talks about how God brings salvation to his people, brings healing to his people, reveals himself and rescues his people through his word. Over and over again through the Old Testament, the word of God is used to describe how God reveals himself. He reveals his power, his character. So, if you'd like, the Word of God is God's self expression. Think about it for a second. The Word of God is his revelation, his self expression. It is the fullest expression of himself. How could we possibly know God except that he reveals himself to us? How does he do it? Through his Word. So, as you begin to think about the identity of Christ, who is this baby? One of the things you see unfolding at the, at the outset of the Gospel of John is that he is the self-expression, he is the word of the living God. He is the revelation of God, revealed now in flesh. And don't miss it. This is divine revelation. I mean, you look at the Bible and you say, well, that's God revealing himself, and it is in words, Uh, You may feel God at work in your life or experience him at work in the life of another people, a a prophet, a a priest, a confidant, a counselor. But here it is supremely, the word of God, a child. God's greatest revelation is not this. Don't get me in trouble. But God's greatest revelation is the one who this points to. This is a book entirely about God. God, and he revealed himself nowhere more dramatically or beautifully than he did in the word, in Christ. So, if Jesus has this relationship with God, and yet he is also, in essence, God himself, God in flesh, how do you figure that one out? This is kind of heady stuff, isn't it? but it 's snowing we 've got time we can just tuck in here it 's a nice day to be inside together The shorthand answer to that question the answer that the church has worked itself uh, worked its way through for for centuries now is using the language of the Trinity the mystery of the Trinity and what we see in the Trinity is the idea that God is always revealing himself we experience him. As God the Father, the maker of heaven and earth, all that exists has its origin in him. And we've come to know him in the person of Jesus, God incarnate, God in flesh, God living and moving among his people. And we have this ongoing experience of God, God at work in our lives, the the indwelling, if you'd like, the indwelling experience of the presence of God, God the Spirit, each of those Each of those dimensions or experiences means that God is revealing something of his boundless nature, of his unassailable character, of his unthinkable power. And so when we see Jesus and the Father in cooperation, and we see them in relationship revealing different characteristics of God, realize that God is not a committee made up of three different people sitting around a table. God is, in beauty, one. And yet, in majesty, always revealing himself in order to be known. When Jesus talks about God the Father, I don't think he's talking in the same way that I talk about my Father. He's talking about God the Father. The Father and I are one, he says, "God in flesh, God in creation." He says as much in John chapter ten. "I and the Father are one." Imagine the scene here: the Jews had cornered Jesus; they found him in the temple in the temple courts, and they're going to ask him another one of those questions, plainly put to him to try and get an answer, but also to try and pin him down and. Uh, and get him something or get something that could hang on him in the form of an accusation. So here it was. It says, How long will you keep us in suspense? John ten, verse twenty four. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. But listen to how Jesus answers. He says, I did tell you plainly, but you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they testify about me, but you don't believe. Why? Because you're not my sheep, you're not. Among my own. If you were, my sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them from my hand. And my Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them from my Father's hand. And here it is I and the Father are one. He is the Lord of creation. I mean, that's the identity of the baby. That's what it means to say that he is the word. He is the fullest self-expression of God. Boy, I, I wish we had time to, to jump into Hebrews, but let me give this to you as a takeaway. Hebrews 1. Have a look at Hebrews 1. In verse 3, it says that he is the radiance of God's glory. In verse 8 it says Jesus is God himself pictures him seated on the throne of heaven. In Colossians, in chapter 2, in verse 9, it says he is the fullness of God. The fullness of deity dwelling in Christ over and over again. You see it in scripture. The very beginning of the book of Revelation, God says, God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. At the very end of the book of Revelation, after the story is told in all of its beautiful, beautiful metaphor and image, at the end, guess who gets to say the same words It's Jesus who rises up and says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. God incarnate, the living word of God. Three more truths in five more minutes. (laughs) He is the author of life. You think about that child. If you look briefly at another passage with me, <clears throat> turn with me just past Philippians into the book of Colossians. So we're going to read from Colossians 1. Amazing, amazing words. Remember how in John we read those words? In him was life. The life was the light of men. All of that, all of that life, it gets summed up here in Colossians 1. Let's read verses 15 through 17. He, that child, Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. Say that with me. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things are. Hold together. By the way, if you went to McMaster University, that's their motto. In Christ, all things hold together. You realize the mammoth truth that you just read there? That the universe, with all of its vast distances, with all of its countless stars and galaxies, is held together by Jesus. Everything. All of our lives, the way that life works, the bodies that, uh, that we live and move through, all held together by Jesus. And the identity of this baby, he is the author of life. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. The author of life, now cradled in a manger, dependent in some way on the creation that he has made, To sustain his own life. You wrestle with that for a couple minutes and you're going to get a headache, but it's a headache worth getting. This baby is the author of life and he holds it all together. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. He is the author of life. Here's another descriptor for you He is the light of the world. This is a great word study. If you're looking for a way of enhancing your Bible reading during the Christmas season, just do a little study of that expression of light. See how that word light works its way through the Gospel of John. There are riches that will unfold for you. The light of the world, the world is dark. And into a world that is filled with pain and suffering and trial and sorrow, in a world of darkness, Jesus bursts onto the scene and light Permeates and penetrates. It overwhelms darkness. Have you ever noticed that, that into a dark room, as soon as you put on a light, doesn't matter what, it could just be a candlelight, but all of your focus shifts and you're no longer concerned about the darkness. What is it that grabs your attention? It's the light. At that moment in history, all of the darkness of the world, it now gets consumed. And the focus of creation now gets attuned to the light. He is the author of life. He is the light of the world. And then here's the last expression. He is the hope of glory. He is the hope of glory. John 14, that you read, The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his what? His glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace, and truth. You probably heard this before, but in that verse John 1:14 when it says that 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 the word made his dwelling among us, literally the word that's used there is a word that you know, the word tabernacled among us. You know that word tabernacle. In the Old Testament, the tent of meeting that that mobile sanctuary of God's people eventually comes to be replaced by the temple itself. But whether tabernacle or temple, here was the idea. It's where you went to experience the presence of God. It's where you went to be overwhelmed by the glory of God. Imagine, some of you had the experience stepping into one of the majestic cathedrals that were built to elevate the human attention to things that were bigger than the world. And if all you saw in your day to day life was the ox in front of you pulling a plow down a field and then you stepped into one of those cavernous structures bathed in color and light as the sun went to shone through the pictures in the stained windows, the vaulted ceilings carried your eyes toward heaven. You would think, boy, if God had an address, this would be it. And the point was that you went to experience something of the radiant glory and beauty of God. Well, here it says that the glory of God came and tabernacled among us. What used to be a place now has become a person. And in him, in Christ, in that baby, All of the radiant glory, the weight of glory, the the beauty and splendor of God, it's all present. And we get to see it. We have beheld his glory. The glory of the one and only, literally the unique son of God. If you want to see the glory of God, you don't need to go to the tabernacle anymore. You don't need to go to the temple. You go to Jesus I know those have been some thick theological truths for a Sunday morning. The word of God, the author of life, the light of the world, the hope of glory. But I don't want to leave those things just in the theological realm. Remember, we said these aren't just historic or important questions. They're personal questions. I want you to to really wrestle for a moment with just how personal those truths are. Because with those truths, in the emerging picture of who Jesus is, there is a decision that we have to make. Those truths have a way of penetrating. And there are ramifications as they make their way into our lives. We have a decision to make. And, and really, it's, it's a choice between two options, and they're both spelled out for us in John chapter 1. You read the words earlier. Let's read them again. John 1, verse 10. Here's the first option. He, the baby, Jesus, God incarnate, he was in the world. And even though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. There's a recognition that means not seeing. But there's also a recognition that means seeing but not honoring. That's your first choice. You, You can see, but not honor. You can reject. And that's certainly an option. It's an option that many people took in Jesus' day. It's an option that many people will still take today. But I want you to realize that it's a frightening choice to make. In light of everything that we've said, all of that truth, word of God, author of life, light of the world, hope of glory, to say to God, In the face of all of that, I am not going to recognize any of it in you. I'm not going to reach out to you as the author of my life. I'm not going to acknowledge you as as the hope, the glorious hope of my future. I'm not going to receive you. That is a frightening choice to make. But here's the other option. In verse 12. To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. That's the second option. Revere him. You don't reject him. You revere him. You say, not just I believe you, but I receive you. I belong to you. The mammoth reality of the Christmas season is that this awesome mammoth event, this fulfillment in the form of a, of an incarnate God, it demands our worship. Our lives are literally in His hand. Reject Him or revere Him. In the next few moments, the next few weeks. It's the option I put in front of all of us. And I want to challenge you, those of you who are watching online, those of you who are here in the room, every man and woman, every child, if you have believed in Him, if you belong to Him, this is the time to revere Him. And if you're here and you've never come to the point where you believe in Him, and somehow the truths that are revealed now, maybe for, for the first time with clarity, they've come into focus. I want to invite you to say this. I want you to say in whatever place that you find yourself, whatever the season, whatever the day it is that you watch these, these messages, I you to say, God, I believe. I believe what the Bible says about you. I believe that what you've said about yourself is true. I honor you now in my life. I turn to you as author of life, as hope of glory. I place my life in your hands. And if that's you, whether you're revering him now or, or whether it's the first time you've spoken those words, we want to come alongside you in prayer. Let me pray for all of us. Now, dear God, we pray. We pray that you would give us a fresh glimpse of your glory, especially now in these moments. And that somehow, God, the mammoth realities of what we've seen in your word would sink deeply into our lives, that now as we reflect on how you came into our world, on on who it is, exactly what it is, the mystery of who Jesus really is. And think about, about how your death bearing the weight of sin and evil in this world, how it impacts us, and thinking about how you rose triumphant, the hope of glory, the author of life eternal, as we reflect on all of these things. We pray, God, that you would come in a fresh, new way into our lives. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen.